Oh, Lord, you are our shepherd. And so we ask this morning that you would take us into the green pastures of your word. That you would bring us to the refreshing streams of your spirit. Lord, that you would set before us a table. That you would anoint us, Lord, so that we might hear and see. And Lord, would you fill our cup to overflowing that we might drink deeply of thee. We pray this, that you would make it so, our shepherd and our king. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would take out your Bibles, or if you have a pew Bible close by, if you would open it up, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 20 through 24, and once you've turned there and you are there, you can stand, and that way we'll know when everybody's gotten there. This is God's Word. Let's hear it gladly. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as promised, I told you that we were going to stick around in these set of verses for a few weeks. And so here we are again. And uh, I could just say this. Um, I keep reading it. I keep memorizing it. Maybe as you keep reading it and hearing it, it'll just start to just get stuck in your system. And you'll be able to reflect on it. As the psalmist said, meditating on your bed at night. Um, what I want us to think about in, in relation to this passage now is to really kind of hone in on verse 23, but not to lose sight of everything else that we've been reading. And that is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And remember what I said to you last week, for those of you here, and if you weren't, I'll catch you up to speed, that that particular idea is a present passive, which means it's ongoing, but it's something that has to be being done to you, that your mind has to be being renewed by God. God has to renew your mind, and it's an ongoing thing. It's ongoing. So no one in this room has a perfectly renewed mind. And no one in this room, as long as you live, will ever have a completely renewed mind. But just because we can't attain it ultimately in this life should be no reason that we don't pursue it with all vigilance and all diligence. That that should be our striving, if for no other reason, then that's what your mind is going to be like when you get to heaven. It will be a renewed mind in its totality. A soul that is fully restored and a body to go along with it. So what I want you to begin to think about is those things, but now let's draw in and consider this whole issue as we move forward. I also want to kind of anticipate where we're going over the next few weeks, which we're going to be discussing very clearly. Paul is going to say in verse 25, therefore, having done all these things, he's still got this idea of something that's happened to you. So therefore, I want us to begin to think about 
how we progress in, in sanctification, how union with Christ is it's very important for that process. Progression in sanctification is no easy thing. It's not easy. And anyone who ever tells you, oh, I came to know Jesus and life just has been a cakewalk ever since. I'm not sure they really know Jesus. I mean, Jesus did tell us things like, in this life you will have tribulation. Paul writes and says, don't be, or excuse me, Peter writes and says, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you. The notion somehow that life as we grow in grace is just this amazing primrose path with rosy colored glasses to go along with it is naive. In fact, it's unbiblical. That does not mean that we don't have joy in the journey. That does not mean that we don't find our wonderful source of true delight, as the hymnist says. The lovely source of true delight. Those things are experienced in this life. And what I want to begin to talk about is how that works itself out. The writer of Hebrews urges us in this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. This is chapter 2. He says, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, earlier this morning in Sunday school class, Steve said, you know, Hebrews scares us. It's supposed to. It's supposed to make you a little uneasy with just thinking you're just going to slip slide your way into the kingdom of God. We are to be diligent and dutiful in our taking hold of the one who has taken hold of us. We are to take hold of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you neglect, if you just drift away from the thing that you've been told, this great salvation. What hope do you really have? It kind of reminds us of C.S. Lewis's book. I think which one it is. I believe it is The Silver Chair, where Jill stands on the hillside and says, dealing with her thirst, she's longing to drink from the stream and she sees the lion and she wants to go to the stream, but she's afraid the lion will eat her. And she begs Aslan to give her all these assurances that he won't eat her, that he won't do anything to her. And finally, when she can't get the assurances she wants, she says, well, I'll just go find another stream. And for those of you that have read this book or know about Lewis or have been around me long enough, you've probably heard this illustration before. What does Aslan say to her? There is no other stream. There is no other stream. If you neglect to come to that stream, you will die of thirst. There is no other stream. Therefore, you can begin to understand why the sermon title today is No Small Matter. Our growing in grace, our salvation, our union with Christ 
is no small matter. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about how you guys think about this. I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes when I'm growing in grace, I feel like I'm losing ground more than I'm gaining it. Um, I feel like I'm taking about 20 steps back and maybe one step forward. Sometimes I think we may feel like Peter in this, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but I've experienced this, where in one moment you're in a conversation and you feel like you're speaking the words of the angels and you're saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, you know, everybody's like going, yeah, that's just wonderful. And the next moment you say something else and you feel like everyone's going, get thee behind me, Satan. Those can really be difficult things because you think how can i be this person that seems to fly into the heavens at one moment and seem to be virtually on the verge the brink of falling into hell on the next how does this work and what i'm really trying to get you to start to think about is in your everyday experience is is that the scriptures tell us this thing that we have become a part of a new creation that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son jesus but it also tells us the very things I don't want to do, I do. The very things I don't want to do, I do. But I've been transferred into the, you see that now and that not yet reality. See, for some of us, we want to say, yeah, we've been transferred and let's march out into in triumphal glory until Jesus comes back. And the problem is the scriptures seem to not let you go there. The reality is that we have tribulation and struggle and it is not ever, hear me people, not ever going to go away in this life. So even if you have that hope that somehow, well, we'll struggle now, but our children or our great grand at some point, it will never stop in this life. Until Jesus comes back, it will never stop. But right now, if we remember, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We live in this tension. We live in this struggle. And the question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why do we live in this struggle? Do you ever ask that? Do you ever ask the Lord that? Have you ever been to a place in your life where you go, Lord, why don't you just let me get sanctified? Let's just get it over with. Just let me be everything you want me to be. Let me never hurt my wife again. Never let me hurt my children again. Never let me do anything that upsets a parishioner. Just let me somehow be perfect. And oh, and let them all get perfect too. Why? Why does God keep us here in this struggle? And what I want to do this morning is hopefully start to give you some answers to why. Why is sanctification a process? And here's the answer. Because when you climb up the mountain and you come to that beautiful lake with its wonderful stream coming out of it, and you take your cup with your desperate thirst and you scoop it down into that stream and you lift that cup out of the water, 
and you begin to drink it, you are refreshed in a way you have never, ever experienced refreshment. And that stream will get more glory than any stream you ever have to speak about ever again. See, the reason why God brings us to a place of struggling is because it makes us thirst more and it makes Him get glory more. Because the more you find Christ refreshing, the more you are convinced that He is your Lord and King. The more you pursue a life which is worthy of such a King. God's glory and our growing in grace are linked together and you can never separate them. And so it is that God brings us to places in this life that we are thirsty like we've never been thirsty before so that we will drink deeply like we've never drunk before. And this is why sometimes when you experience pain and hurt and sorrow in this life, God allows those things to take place so that He might gain glory, but that you might gain joy and refreshment. And see, again, as I told you last week, sanctification, just like most things with God, are counterintuitive. In this life, we think, no problems, at ease, God's happy, we're happy, everybody's happy. But God says it doesn't work like that. In this life, the more you recognize your need for me and the more you find me satisfying, I'm glorified and you're satisfied. So I want us to begin to think about how we're working through those things. You remember in this passage before us, it said that we were to put off the old self, which belongs to your former man of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. What needs to happen in us is we need to have our desires transformed. And God's in the process of doing that. I want you to listen to this quote. I'm going to quote several times from The Weight of Glory from C.S. Lewis. But listen to this quote. What he's, let me set it up a little bit. What he's talking about here is this notion of, in the present time, people tend to really emphasize the notion of unselfishness as opposed to the old theologian's Discussion of love. We now don't talk so much about loving, although that may be changing some in recent period, but for the most part, people tend to talk about, well, you shouldn't be selfish, and you shouldn't be this, and you ought to have a spirit of unselfishness. That's what really shows you to be a good Christian, and this is what he says. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion, not primarily, of securing good things for others, which love does, but of going without them ourselves, as if abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. And I would challenge you to go through the New Testament and find me one place where Jesus says, give up so you can do without. There is no place 
in the Bible that suggests such a thing. Jesus never suggested it. No one who follows me and gives up mother, father, sister, brother, houses, everything, will do without that. Now they will have all those things and in heaven eternal life forever. In the end, eternal life. And see, part of it, when you say, take up your cross and follow me, what do you get when you follow Jesus? You get Jesus. And that's no small matter. See, our desires are really our problem. We tend to think in terms of very earthy things. And before I get to the more famous quote of Lewis, I want to talk about how that works in us. One of the things is that we have weak desires. We really desire things that really aren't that great. For those of you that have struggled with some form of addiction to things, I mean, there comes a point to where it's not even the thing anymore. It's just, it's just this engulfing reality that just overwhelms you and you're just addicted to it. But the thing itself has long stopped having any real desire for you. You're just addicted. And it's cheap. And it's not really all that satisfying. It's a low thing. It's a small thing. Often why we tend to desire those things is because of this. It's because we have a light view of sin and a cheap view of grace. And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. When you have a light view of sin, what I mean by that is that you actually think you can do something good in this life yourself. You actually begin to live a life which thinks, look at me, I'm accomplishing good. Or you tell other people, why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? Why aren't you doing it? Well, here's the point. How would a person start to do that which is good in this life? Is it by telling them to go out and do it better? Work harder? Get more strength? Let's do some spiritual calisthenics so you can get up enough strength and energy to do all the things that God's commanded you to do? Or is it to come to a place where you realize, I can't do it? I mean, doesn't James tell us that if you break one word of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing? Who in this room has ever kept the law perfectly? Ever. One day in your life have ever in yourself kept the law perfectly have it. It's not one person in this room that has. And what should happen is not that you then start hating the law and saying, okay, well, let's run the other direction and say, well, the law is irrelevant. That's no. If you remember several weeks ago, I said, one of the things when God enters your heart, he should be growing in you a deep love for his whole counsel. And that is for his law. But that does not mean that then you basically... Say, okay, now that I love the law, I now change my whole way of thinking and say, now what I'm supposed to do is do the law. Because if I do the law, I'll somehow be walking and doing what God wants me to do. You could actually do the law and not do what's pleasing to God. Read and hear from me, Jesus tells the Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Was sacrifice lawful? Yes. 
I desire mercy. How does one find out about the mercy of God? One has to come cleanly aware that I am wicked to the core apart from Christ and that every aspect of good that dwells in me is Christ in me. It's His Spirit in me. That ultimately what I am completely dependent on is Christ. And then what you do when you really see that is you don't think of sin but lightly. See, because what you really start to begin in your head to think is sin is a wicked, wicked, evil, horrible, vicious thing. And I hate it. See, at some point, what you need to pray for is, God, make me hate the ring. For those of you of Lord of the Ring fandom, you'll know what I'm saying here. Make me hate the ring. I don't want the things it offers me. I'd rather die than disappear. I hate it. And see, we need to become people who, when we really understand how really pervasive sin is in us and around us, we then become, become people who realize that's the enemy. And do you see how that then gives you strength to fight against things which lead you into sinful stuff? See, if I really start to think sin's the enemy, then I don't care how enticing that junk on the Internet is. I don't care how low that girl may wear her shirt or how high she wears her skirt or how incredibly buff that fireman in his calendar looks. Lusting is killing me. It's killing me. It's destroying me. And I hate it. Not because I deny the fact that this girl's attractive or this guy's handsome or whatever. It's not that I deny those realities. It's that I have a different perspective on the whole matter. I've been moved from the old creation into the new. And the new says, that kills you. And we need to become people who, as we understand our struggle with sin... And the fact that we can't get free of it, we can't get rid of it, we begin to hate it and look at it for what it really is. It is nasty stuff. And when we realize we can't set ourselves free from it, then we stop cheapening grace. All of a sudden, grace becomes valuable, precious ointment. We treat it with the value it really possesses. This isn't cheap stuff. This is costly stuff. The hymn writer was right. If you think of sin but lightly, or suppose the evil not so great, you here may view its nature rightly. How? By looking at the cost. The value of something is always its cost. How much did the cross cost? It cost Jesus everything. Everything. So how precious is that grace stuff? How sweet is it when God pours out His mercy like oil on Aaron's beard, running down all over the garments? How sweet and precious is that thing? 
See, then you begin to agree with the hymn writers and they say, oh, how precious is the flow that makes me whiter than the snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, our desires are too weak. We mess around with stuff that really is cheap. No woman, no man, no computer game, no amount of prestige could ever offer you what Christ has offered you in the gospel. Nothing is as costly as grace. Maybe this will sink it in with what Lewis says. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Ouch. So see, the first thing we want God to do is to change, transform my desires. Make me love what heaven offers. Change me. Change what I desire. The second thing, God, why God allows us to wrestle through trials and tribulations to help us grow in our understanding of our benefits in Christ. See, if you don't really, if you don't really understand what you're getting, it's just like that child. A little child sitting there in the slums making mud pies, and that's, that could be fun. Mud pies could be fun. I remember it's not been that long ago since either of my saw my children making mud pies, but I can still remember a few mud pies that I made as a child and even tried to eat one, as a matter of fact. And remember what that cake thing is it got in my mouth. It's pretty nasty. But it was good times. But I can assure you having a holiday at the sea is way better. And having experienced both, I can just let you know that holidays at the sea are way better than sitting beside a a ditch making mud pies. So what we need to then understand is, this is why Paul has spent all this time writing Ephesians and other letters, is so that you will understand what your benefits are. For those of you that have gone to get a new job, one of the things, if you're intelligent, you ask is not just what the salary package is, but you ask, what's the benefit? What's the whole benefit package? What are we getting for this? And what I want you to understand is as God changes your desires, then you also ought to ask Him to change how you view and value the benefits freely offered to you in Christ. When we trusted in Christ, our ties to the old man were severed and we, were put, we put off the old man and thus the new man was put on. Paul's already told us that. That's what happened. You put off and you put on. 
This new reality is mine because I have trusted in Christ. The grace and faith required for belief have been given to me by this means. I have become a part of the one new man and am aligned in his destiny. Do you understand that? If you really are in Christ, whatever Christ's destiny is, that's your destiny. If his destiny is to be honored by the Father, your destiny is to be honored by the Father. What are we told if we finish the race? We hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Why would God tell a human being he made some little speck of dust? Well done, good and faithful servant. Even though I gave you the faith, I gave you the grace, I gave you the spirit, I united you to Christ, I pretty much did everything. Well done, good and faithful servant. So you getting the picture here of the benefit package? It's phenomenal. It's overwhelming. Again, it ought to drop us to our knees. You are united to Christ. Every aspect of his destiny, he has said, you're united to me in. This means that Christ not only sets us free from the old man, he puts on us all his goodness, righteousness, and holiness. He adorns us with all his beauty. He applies to us by his spirit all his benefits. As true sons, we lack nothing. 2 Peter 1, 3-4 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you hear it? The more you begin to take into yourself, here's the benefits, here's the good stuff of Christ, here's what's so glorious about being united to Christ, here's all these things the more your desires begin to change. So we want God to change our desires. Part of the way He changes our desires is by showing us, look, this is the really valuable stuff. Oh, you like cubic zirconia? Well, let me show you the hope diamond I just put on your finger when I said you're the bride of Christ. You thought the cubic zirconia was cool? It's nothing. That's child's play. Up what you want. Up your desires. Long for heaven, not for just the, the play stuff down here. Walter Marshall, in his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, says these things about our union with Christ and their relationship to our salvation. First, Christ died that you might be justified by the righteousness of God by faith and not by your own righteousness which comes from the law. Second, Christ also died so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in you as you walk according to his spirit as one who is in Christ. Did you hear that? Second, Christ also died so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in you as you walk according to his spirit as the one who is in Christ. See, think about what we read in Ephesians 2.10. For you are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. In other words, in union with Christ, as you start walking in faith, and you're trusting in God, and you're praying for Him to change your desires, and He's doing that, and you are following hard after God and thirsting for Him and drinking deeply, the Bible has the audacity to say, that's what fulfilling the law looks like. That actually in Christ, you're obeying. That you're actually doing the things of the Lord because you're in Christ. Because you are being renewed. More and more, every day, to put off the old man, to put on the new, to be renewed in the whole man, as the catechism tells us, so that we hate sin more and love righteousness more. This working out of our salvation. Marshall goes on to say, here, justification and sanctification are closely related. It is through union with Christ that you are justified by His cross and it is through union with Christ that you are sanctified by His Spirit. Now here's, what he, here's the punchline of that whole section he's speaking from. These scriptures clearly say that Christ did not die to enable you to produce a holy nature by yourself. Christ died so that you might receive a holy nature prepared and created in Him for you through your union and fellowship with Him. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me if perfection is required to enter into heaven's gates and I can't get perfect in order to get justified and I can't get perfect in order to be completely sanctified, it sounds like it's a pretty phenomenal benefit that Christ unites me to Himself so that in justification, my guilt's removed and in sanctification, the requirement of perfection is met. Not because I can meet it, but because Christ in me meets it. Are you understanding that? Now see, the fear that some have is that if you tell people that kind of stuff, what do you think they're going to do with it? They're just going to go out there and run amok. What I say to you is no one can run amok with that if they really understand it. See, if you really understand how awful your sin is, if you really believe that if you have wickedness attached to you, you will burn in hell. That is no small matter. It's the truth. Then how in the world that a God who you have defied with every ounce of your being says, I've united myself to you and given you everything required to meet your guilt and given you everything required to make you holy and meet my standards, how could you possibly say, cool, see you later? No. What it invokes in the true believer is people who fall down on their knees. It invokes in people to come back like the tenth leper and say, Thank you. Thank you. By your stripes, I'm healed. That's no small matter. It doesn't make for flippant people, it makes for worshipers. Now, the third thing I want us to consider of this and the last thing I want to consider is that God allows us to go through trials and tribulations to draw us to believe the triune God loves us. 
See, in some ways, if we want our desires to change, if we really want to understand the benefits, what we ultimately have to really get into ourselves is that God really loves us. He loves wicked, messed up, foul, screwed up, twisted people, just like you and me. He loves us. And it's not that he got us all cleaned up and then said, I love you. No, what we're told is that God loved us even before he got us all cleaned up, smelling nice, looking spiffy. What I want us to understand is God's love and our union with Christ are directly related. And I want you to listen to how John 17, in fact, if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 17, go ahead, because I'm going to read a little bit of extended passage. But I want you to look and see that Jesus has in his mind that it is imperative that if we would walk with him, that we need to understand how love and our union with him and God's glory are attached together. Look at what he says here. John 17, beginning in verse 22. And this is what Jesus says. The glory that you have given me, speaking to his Father in heaven, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. See there, that connectedness. I and them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The world needs to know that you love them like you love me. That as the church grows together in its unity and its awareness of its union with Christ, that we become perfected in oneness, that the world may know that God loves us just like he loves Christ. I read on. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So if God loves us, just like he loves Jesus, when did he love Jesus? Before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Here's that love part again. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see, we must come to terms with how much God loves us. If we really want our desires to change and we really want to value the benefits that are offered to us, we must come to terms with how he loves us and how important that is. You're back in Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at what Paul says about this, beginning in verse 4 and reading through verse 6. Remember what we've read up there, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins and all those things. So verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see how God's love and our union with Christ are woven together? 
we have to come to an appreciation of the fact if we would value being united to Christ, we have to realize how much God loves us in doing that. That this is an aspect of God's love that He has united us to Christ. The second thing I want us to consider under this is that the supreme ethic of heaven is love. There is no higher ethic. You want to be an ethical person, then you must value love. It is the supreme ethic of heaven. Romans 5, 8 tells us this, But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Turn over to 1 John 4. This is the last section of Scripture we're going to look at, but I like sticking your nose in the Bible, so we're going to do that one more time. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now notice what John just told you. If you are loved by God, then you have been redeemed, and therefore your consequent actions are to love. Because if you're born of God, what do you do? You love. The one who has been forgiven much... Loves much. See, you see how this works. As you see sin as really wicked stuff, you value grace as amazing stuff. You see the benefits offered to you. What Jesus says through John is this, that you will love me because you will see my love for you. True love offered to a person does not lead them to despise it. It leads them to value it. It goes on, he goes on to say this. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You want a reason why you ought to love all these people sitting around you? Because the more you love them, the more you get to really experience a small taste of heaven. Because God's abiding with us. And the more we demonstrate that love and begin to see that ethic of heaven begin to permeate our presence, we begin to get a greater and greater and richer taste of heaven. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So it's saying how important it is that we actually value and know and believe that God loves us. By this is love, perfe- excuse me, so we've come to know God, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I read that long extended thing because I wanted you to hear right there that coming to a place where we really say, I know and believe and value and rest in the fact that God loves me. It makes me go, well, of course, a God who really loves me would meet all the things that are necessary for me to be with him. Thus, I understand why I have all these amazing benefits. And now the fact that I have within me these desires which don't value those things and don't really appraise rightly how much God has loved me, what do I want to do? Well, I want to love him. So what do I desire? Lord, change my desires. As you begin to see how what God is doing actually makes perfect sense, even though maybe it doesn't seem like it at the start. What God does by letting us go through trials and tribulations and struggles and hardships and sanctification is actually make us apprise Him and His worth more greatly, which makes us hate that which has destroyed humanity and hurts and afflicts us and which brings dishonor to His name. And so we see that for whatever reason, God is willing to be patient that He might gain glory and that we might see and value how sweet the waters of the stream really are. Because there's a sense in which if all God did for you was to basically go, you were really bad, you were really a mess, and you were really, and, and now you're perfect, it's not to say you wouldn't value Him, but you wouldn't have the same appreciation when you got to heaven. Let me say this to you, men and women, and this is how I'll close. See, I want you to get the big picture. When we're raised to newness of life, we're not going to forget the journey. We're going to remember it. And when we walk into heaven, how sweet do you think the sound of Jesus' name is going to be in the believer's ear? How sweet do you think it's going to be when you drink from the table? How tasty and filling is it going to be when you eat the banquet t- from the banquet table that's been prepared for you? See, the value of the thing will have increased because God has given you the privilege of seeing it as costly. He didn't have to. He's given you that benefit of knowing the stream cures my thirst. Give me more of the stream. And that, men and women, is no small matter.